0: Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph and I'm Sham. We talk a lot about murder victims on this podcast, but some cases have more victims than just the person that was killed. Sometimes who committed the crime is not as clear as it seems. Why would someone confess to something they didn't do? It sounds crazy, right? It actually happens more often than we would like to accept. This is a story of four teenagers framed for a crime when the real killer was right in front of police all along. On the morning of November 7th, 1994, the naked body of a local woman named Nina Glover was found in a dumpster in the Inglewood neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. The dumpster was behind the family supermarket liquor store. Nina had been brutally raped, murdered, and wrapped in a bedsheet before her body, along with her clothes and shoes, were tossed into the dumpster. She had lacerations and bruises on her face, suggesting that she had been beaten with a sharp object. Nina was 30 years old and well-known in that neighborhood for prostitution and drug use, and her high-risk lifestyle colored the perception of her case for the community. An autopsy concluded that sometime between 11.30 p.m. on November 6th and the early morning of November 7th, she had been raped and then strangled. Unfortunately, this kind of case wasn't that uncommon for that area. Nina was one of at least three dozen women to be sexually assaulted and murdered in a similar way in the 90s in the south side of Chicago. When police first arrived at the scene, Officer James Cassidy interviewed four people who were present at the crime scene when Nina's body was found. The garbage truck driver who found the body and called the police, the assistant manager of the liquor store, someone who lived right around the corner, and a man named Johnny Douglas who lived about 10 miles away. Johnny was the only one who had no good reason to be there at 7 a.m. on a Monday morning, but he told police that he knew nothing about the crime and he didn't know nina glover so officer james sent him on his way there was very little evidence to work with at the scene suggesting that she was killed somewhere else and moved police did find semen in and on nina but they didn't think much about it because as a prostitute it could just have been from consensual sex the case went cold and sat with no progress for months Okay,
1: I get why her occupation may make it difficult to tell she was raped, but the woman was found dead. That semen should have been
0: tested. I completely agree. At the very least, it was the last person to see her alive.
1: So they felt confident no one at the crime scene was involved. Did they end up having any leads?
0: Not exactly. On the night of March seventh, 1995, four months after Nina was murdered, three Chicago police officers picked up an 18-year-old boy named Jerry Fincher standing on the street outside his house a few blocks from where Nina's body was found. They took Jerry into custody and locked him in an interrogation room for two days. They refused his request to see his mom, who was already there at the police station, trying to figure out what was going on. Jerry had a severe and obvious learning and disability, and could barely read. Jerry insisted he knew nothing about the murder of Nina, but police weren't satisfied with that. Officers Frank Valdez, Kenneth Boudreaux, Richard Palladina, and James Cassidy decided Jerry needed some encouragement. They grabbed a chain he wore around his neck and yanked him back by it, choking him. They pulled his hair and, with a hand on his chest, threw him up against a wall. They told him that if he didn't cooperate, they would have to get even more physical. When that didn't work, they threatened to tell a local street gang that Jerry had told police that they had murdered Nina. If that rumor got out, the gang would kill Jerry for sure.
1: Okay, we've seen this before. The wear them down tactic until they can no longer take it anymore and will agree to anything to make it stop. How about you guys
0: just do your actual job? Right? If you have decided to ignore the actual evidence, and instead feel the need to beat and scare a mentally disabled person into submission, maybe you need a different career. (laughs) Maybe. So did he crack? Of course he did. Jerry was terrified and trapped, so he agreed to do whatever the cops wanted, but he was innocent and didn't actually have any information to give them. That wasn't an issue for these four officers. They proceeded to describe to Jerry a made up scenario in which Jerry and some of his friends in the neighborhood had kidnapped Nina and taken her to a local basement at approximately 9 p.m. on November 6th. The group of teens gang raped her, strangled her and then together carried her body one and a half blocks to dispose of her body in the dumpster. All he had to do was name a few of his friends. They instructed Jerry to say that he only stood by and watched the other teenage boys rape the woman. They assured him that because he played a minimal role in the crime, he wouldn't be in that much trouble. These corrupt officers brought in Assistant State's Attorney Terrence Johnson, who helped them write up a statement and pressure Jerry into signing it, knowing full well he couldn't read it. They told Jerry that he could go home if he signed the statement, but if he didn't, he would go to prison for 60 years. Jerry's mom continued to wait in the lobby while her son was interrogated, but they refused to let her see him. Eventually, Jerry broke and signed the statement, giving the officers four names of boys that lived in his neighborhood that he barely knew as his co-conspirators. 17-year-old Terrell Swift, 15-year-old Michael Saunders, 18-year-old Vincent Thames, and 16-year-old Harold Richardson. Like Jerry, none of these teenagers were involved in any way in the murder, but that didn't matter. The officers and prosecutor knew Jerry's statement would never hold up against him in court due to his mental disability, their blatant coercion tactics, and the fact that they had personally made up the whole story and fed it to him. Despite knowing the statement was made up, they agreed to use it as the basis for the arrest and interrogation of the other teenagers Jerry had named.
1: This happens so frequently in Black communities, and to young men in particular. They intimidate them during interrogation, they don't allow them access to a lawyer, they convince them to sign away their rights, and they often keep the parents of these kids away in order to get a false statement. It's terrifying, honestly.
0: It's horrifying. And you're right, it's far more common that it's done to black communities. This case is no exception. When researching this case, I read some reports that these cops made jokes about how it didn't matter that they probably didn't do it because they're just black kids. Uh,
1: So I know this is common in all states, but if these cops have a quota they had to meet, what caused them to make up such bullshit?
0: Well, the Chicago Police Department keeps track of open homicides and reports a homicide clearance rate to the public. During the 1990s and early 2000s, Chicago's homicide clearance rate was usually between 40 and 70 percent, leading to public concern over hundreds of unsolved murder cases. When officers obtained a confession, a case would be considered cleared and closed and counted as solved, improving the city's homicide clearance rate. This was true no matter of the reliability of the suspect's confession or whether the case ultimately resulted in a conviction. In the face of a cold murder case with no obvious leads, police officers often resorted to manufacturing evidence. As a matter of routine practice, Chicago police would canvass the neighborhood where the crime occurred and press vulnerable individuals for more information, in an attempt to find an excuse to further interrogate and then manipulate and or force those individuals into confessing. After obtaining the confession, the case would be marked as cleared and closed. That is exactly what these Chicago officers intended to do with this case.
1: Okay, we're podcast hosts and even we know who the real suspect is after hearing about the people at the crime scene. Give us their damn badges already. (laughs)
0: right i get that they're under pressure to solve cases but maybe try doing that by doing your job instead of targeting random vulnerable people in the neighborhood oh my gosh right
1: so who else did they intimidate next
0: okay 18 year old vincent Thames was the first to be arrested on march 9th 1995 they showed up at his house and dragged him out without telling his family anything Vincent had never been in trouble with the law before and had no idea what his rights were or what an interrogation is supposed to be like. They abused him and threatened him for hours while he was chained to an interrogation room wall. He insisted he had nothing to do with any murder, but they insisted back that he did. They threatened Vincent with life in prison if he didn't confess and promised he could go home immediately if he cooperated with them. Over the course of several hours of threats of physical violence and life in prison, Vincent agreed to the confession out of fear. Prosecutor Johnson wrote up a statement with all of the details of the murder not released to the public for Vincent to sign. The false confession he signed implicated himself as well as each of the other teenage boys Jerry had named. So they threaten him with physical violence as if they're not already performing that and life in prison as if they don't already
1: plan on giving him that all along.
0: Right? Never believe anything the cops promise you. They are not going to let you go home if you confess to what they think you did. So they went on to the next boy. When these police officers showed up at Terrell Swift's house shortly after arresting Vincent, they decided not to mention Nina's murder case at all. Instead, they told him that he was being arrested because they suspected him of hiding someone of interest to the police and needed him to look at some pictures. They intentionally lied to Terrell's parents about which police station they were taking him to in order to isolate the 17-year-old boy from his family. At this point, even more of Chicago's finest got involved in the action. Officers Frank Valdez, Kenneth Boudreaux, Richard Palladina, William Foley, Thomas Coughlin, James Cassidy, Pat McCafferty, and Assistant State's Attorney Terrence Johnson all interrogated Terrell for hours. He repeatedly asked for his parents or a lawyer, but all of his requests were refused. Just like they had done to Jerry, they fed Terrell details of the murder and repeatedly instructed him to confess to the story they laid out. They told him over and over that if he signed the confession, he was free to go home but if he didn't, they would put him in jail for the rest of his life. Despite their threats, he continued to insist he was innocent. They continued to work on him psychologically and threaten him physically, and eventually Terrell gave in and signed the fabricated confession. After he signed it, the officers took Terrell to Sherman Park near the crime scene, where they believed the murder actually took place. They instructed Terrell to point randomly towards the lagoon and they would take him home. Believing he had no choice, he did as they instructed, and later the officers produced a rusty shovel and a piece of wood from the direction where he had pointed. They entered these items as evidence in the murder of Nina Glover, even though they were just random pieces of trash from a trash-filled lagoon.
1: He was being nothing but honest, and unfortunately these police knew that It still made him out to be a bad kid. It's really sad that children of color don't fit into the saying, kids just being kids. A non-child of color can steal a candy bar, and the store calls their parents. Let it be another child, and that may be the day their life ends by gun or by prison. This is even worse because he actually did nothing.
0: They straight up framed this teenage boy for murder. Point to the lake. And suddenly they find trash there that they claim is evidence? Please, give me a break. Ugh,
1: and I bet they just keep getting younger.
0: You know it. On the night of March 9th, while Terrell was still being interrogated, police drove up on Harold Richardson while he was walking home from a friend's house. They took this 16-year-old boy off the street, telling him they caught him in front of the crime scene and threatened to take him to a nearby viaduct and kill him then and there. Once at the station, they chained him to the wall of the interrogation room like they had Vincent and fed him details of Nino's murder. They told him the other teenagers had already implicated him, but he denied any part in the crime. The officers continued to pressure him, making all the same promises they had the other boys if he signed the statement. After hours of coercion, Harold eventually agreed to confess, but refused to sign the written statement. The officers then forced Harold to verbally confess in front of Prosecutor Johnson and another officer that wasn't involved in the interrogation as witnesses. Even though the confession was clearly forced, these officers knew their fellow cops would back them up in court. Ugh, an
1: entire gang of adults and no one had their back, knowing everything coming out of their mouth was a lie.
0: I would say that their parents should have busted down that door and got their kids out of there, but Harold's parents didn't even know where he was since the cops snatched him off the street.
1: Yeah, that probably wouldn't go well for Harold's parents either. (laughs) What about Michael? Michael?
0: Lastly, they arrested 15-year-old Michael Saunders on March 10th when he was walking down the street. Once he was at the police station, they interrogated him for hours, refusing to let him see his mom or a lawyer when he repeatedly begged for them. They never read him his rights and made terrifying threats that he had no way of knowing were illegal. Like the others, they threatened Michael with life in prison if he didn't cooperate and told him he could go home immediately if he agreed to confess. After hours of brutal interrogation, Michael still refused to confess to something he didn't do. Michael was proving to be tougher to crack, so they ramped up their tactics. They ripped out Michael's earrings, slapped him across the face repeatedly, and told him that if he didn't confess, they would take him down to the railroad tracks and shoot him. They taunted him that because they had arrested him off the street, his parents would never know what happened to him if they killed him. They showed him photos of the victim's body, including close-ups of her injuries. He held out longer than the others, but in the end, he too signed the statement, falsely confessing to a murder he didn't commit. 15
1: years old? I know some of you guys are sitting at home while your 15-year-old's upstairs making a new TikTok video, and you're thinking, my son is just a child. Well, so was Michael, but unfortunately, he was viewed as someone who didn't deserve a future outside of bars for simply just being.
0: How anyone can live with themselves after framing children for murder is beyond me. Studies have shown that law enforcement ranks in the top 10 careers most often chosen by psychopaths. These officers were clearly part of that statistic.
1: Sadly, none of this surprises me, though. This is the same story for so many people, just different names in different cities.
0: You're right. After this short break, Sharon will tell us what happened when these cases went to trial.
1: Because of their forced confessions, each of them were charged with first-degree murder and aggravated sexual assault. No physical or forensic evidence ever linked the teenage boys to the crime. In fact, the physical evidence excluded the teenagers if the police had bothered to look. Despite the confessions claiming that each of the teenagers raped Nina, the forensic evidence revealed that the semen found on Nina's body came from a single source, and the DNA didn't match any of the boys. Although the officers and the prosecutor were aware of this evidence, they continued to misrepresent under oath the circumstances in which they obtained the confessions. They concealed the coercion and the threats of violence they had used, and the fact that the information in the confessions had been fed to the teenagers. At a pretrial hearing, Jerry's original statement was determined to have been coerced and was suppressed as evidence. Charges against Jerry were dropped and he was released from jail after spending three and a half years waiting for trial. The original statement that named the other four teenagers being thrown out didn't stop the prosecution from moving forward with the other false confessions. In May of 1998, Terrell, Harold, and Michael all pled not guilty and went to trial. Each was tried separately before a judge without a jury. The officers testified to the legitimacy of the confessions, and even without any actual evidence against them, Judge Sumner convicted all three teenagers. The judge sentenced Terrell to 30 years in prison, and both Harold and Michael to 40 years. After seeing the sentences of the other boys, Vincent decided to plead guilty and exchange to 30 years in prison. They were nicknamed the Englewood Four and branded rapists and murderers by the public. The disgusting misconduct that took place in those interrogation rooms stayed buried for the next 15 years.
0: I don't understand how a judge couldn't see right through that. There's too much faith put in the assumed integrity of police officers.
1: It's likely the judge and the officers were buddies outside of court, honestly. They would rather protect their own than hear evidence in Vax.
0: What about that DNA? Did anyone try to figure out who it belonged to?
1: Well, on December 3rd of 2010, Terrell and Michael filed a motion for an order to conduct a more advanced form of DNA testing and upload the results into the state DNA database to try to identify the person who actually left the semen on Nina's body. Prosecutors initially objected to this request, but reluctantly agreed when the other two men joined in on the motion as well. On May 13th of 2011, the Illinois State Police reported a hit to a known offender in the DNA database. The DNA matched a man named Johnny Douglas, who was actually someone present at the crime scene when the body was found. He was originally interviewed and cleared with no actual investigation into his record or his reason for being at the scene. On November 16th of 2011, based on the DNA evidence, Judge Paul Bybel overturned the convictions of all four men, stating that if there is a DNA match, then we're talking about another case altogether. Terrell, Vincent, Harold, and Michael were released on bail pending a new trial after 15 years in prison. At a brief hearing on January 17 of 2012, the Cook County Prosecutor stated that they will not retry the four men and all charges were dismissed. That September, they were each granted certificates of
0: innocence and awarded $208,800 in compensation. Just like that. If they had done their jobs and run the DNA at the time of the crime, none of this would have happened. 200,000 is not nearly enough for what they were put through. And I bet none of them lost their jobs either. Tell us about this Johnny Douglas guy. Did they charge him once they identified his DNA?
1: Yeah, so the real murderer, Johnny Douglas, was dead by the time his DNA was run through the system. Looking at his record though, it's easy to see his connection to the murder of Nina. Johnny was 30 years old at the time of Nina's murder. His nickname was Maniac and he had a reputation for being a bully who violently attacked people frequently. Johnny had been arrested 83 times and convicted of 38 of those crimes between the years of July 1980 and April of 1998. Many of his convictions were for sexual assaults and brutal attacks on women. Nina was far from Johnny's first victim. On March 5th of 1993, over two years before killing Nina, Johnny paid Deborah Gibson to have sex with him and then assaulted her for no reason, hitting her over the head with a rock. A couple months later, on May 5th of 1993, Johnny attempted to force Brenda Healy to have oral sex with him. When she tried to escape, he beat her with a stick and cut her with broken glass. On July 10th of 1994, four months before killing Nina, Johnny met a woman named Caprice Bramlett in the exact same neighborhood he would later attack Nina. Johnny raped Caprice twice and choked her. Johnny was convicted of aggravated sexual assault based on what he did to Caprice and was sentenced to six months in prison, but he was released after only three months. On October 21st of 1994, shortly after his release from prison and just weeks before attacking Nina, Johnny attempted to rape a woman named Hazel Spite. Johnny grabbed her and demanded she undress, but someone interrupted them before Johnny could rape
0: her. Uh, okay. The nickname Maniac certainly fits. What a psycho.
1: He got off so many times, why would he not continue being the monster
0: he is? Were these crimes known at the time if the detectives had just looked him up?
1: All of these assaults were reported and available to the police at the time of Nina's murder, but they never bothered to look into Johnny. Because they didn't look into Johnny when he was interviewed at the crime scene, he went on to terrorize even more women. On June 17th of 1995, a little over six months after killing Nina, Johnny raped and murdered Elaine Martin. Elaine was a sex worker who was pregnant at the time of the attack. Johnny raped her, then strangled her, and left her body in the back alley, similar to how he left Nina. A couple years later, on April 14th of 1997, Johnny raped and strangled a sex worker named Guillotone Marsh, and left her body discarded in the public parking garage. He later pled guilty to her murder and admitted to trading cocaine for sex with her and strangling her to death while they had sex. After a few months after her murder, Johnny raped a woman named Katie Oakes in his parents' garage. He was later linked to that crime through DNA he left on her clothes. Five other women spoke up against him for beating and sexually assaulting them, but nothing came of it. During one of his trials for murder, he was asked about these allegations and he admitted to doing it, but laughed that no one had believed them because they were just prostitutes. Johnny's violence against women finally came to an end in 2008 when he was shot to death by Minosa Winters. Johnny was in the process of attacking Minosa when she grabbed a gun and shot Johnny in self-defense. The lives of Elaine and Guyotone could have been saved if Officer James Cassidy had done his job and looked into Johnny at the time of the murder instead of framing four innocent children. All the evidence pointed to Johnny, who should have been on their radar as someone at the crime scene with no good reason to be in the area.
0: He felt emboldened to kill those other women because he so easily got away with Nina's murder. Their blood is on the hands of these cops.
1: I mean, I'm sorry to say it, and some of our listeners may be offended by this factual statement, but this entire case is on the cops. All of this could have been avoided by someone wearing a badge and doing the right thing.
0: Absolutely. They cared more about marking the case closed than they did about justice or the lives of innocent children. They are despicable people who never should have been given any power over the fate of anyone's life. Anyone who was aware of something off with this case, evidence not being tested, or even chose not to look too hard at the facts of this case, like the judge, should all be ashamed and held accountable. These
1: men were children when they were ripped away from their loving families and stripped of the basic pleasures of the human experience. They sat helpless and afraid in prison, convicted of a crime they did not commit. They missed out on the opportunity to graduate from high school, share holidays, birthdays, funerals, and other life events with their loved ones. They were robbed of the opportunity to have girlfriends, to fall in love, to get married, and to pursue a career. Throughout their years in prison, these men were branded rapists and murderers, the lowest of criminals. Teenagers when they were locked away and not released until they were in their 30s. They missed out on all the fundamental experiences of their 20s not surprisingly, they still suffer from physical and psychological pain as a result of what they went through. Pain and emotional distress, including humiliation, constant fear of law enforcement, anxiety, depression, insomnia, despair, rage, and other physical and psychological effects from their years behind bars. The men sued the city of Chicago for $30 million, divided among the four of them. They also individually sued the county for between 5 and $8 million each for the pain and suffering. Vincent's attorney reminded the public that, and I quote, no one should ever think that this money is a field day for these victims. They got the
0: rawest of the raw deals. Nothing can make up for what was done to them. Their youth was stolen from them, and it can never be made right. Money is the least the city can do.
1: I'm sure they would rather have lived their lives as normal children than go through the trauma of being framed for something they didn't do, prison, and missing their 20s. Hopefully this money gave them a little comfort and helped their families out.
0: I'm sure there were some idiots who don't agree.
1: What makes you think that? The Settlements drew criticism from the Fraternal Order of Police Vice President Martin Prieb, who frequently alleges media bias against officers and criticizes civil rights attorneys who focus on wrongful conviction cases. He is quoted as saying, What is happening in this city is that the civil rights lawyers have carved out a cottage industry in the name of wrongful convictions. He continued with, They look to this chamber as their blank check. Their playbook is simple. They claim police misconduct get the prosecutors to exonerate, draft a willing media, and then manipulate the citizens of Chicago out of their tax money. In response, one of the attorneys representing these men responded that, and I quote, the citizens of Chicago are still paying for the police misconduct and will continue to do so until people rise up and say they're not going to stand up for misconduct any longer. One of the reasons these settlements were even agreed to by the city was because former assistant state's attorney Terrence Johnson broke rings from other law enforcement and admitted to exactly what they had done to these boys. His career had already ended at that point when he was convicted in 2000 of felony sexual assault of a minor. In 2012, the FBI opened a civil rights investigation into the allegations of misconduct by police and prosecutors against the foreman. Even with Terrence Johnson admitting in detail what they had done to these men, no charges were filed against any of the officers or prosecutors.
0: I agree with their lawyer. The city should continue to pay victims of wrongful conviction until they stop allowing people of color to be railroaded. That prosecutor is even worse than we realize. He's just committing heinous crimes all over the place. You don't want to have your taxes used on
1: a quote unquote criminal? Then call out the next hate crime you see. If you know something is wrong, say something. Otherwise, pay up, because the victims will get an ounce of what they
0: deserve. Cases like this are heartbreaking and infuriating. I'm not surprised that the officers weren't prosecuted for what they did, but it isn't right. This happens more than we can even imagine, and many of the wrongful convicted are still locked up. Chicago police detectives Kenneth
1: Boudreaux, Richard Palladino, James Cassidy, Thomas Coughlin, William Foley, Frank Valadez, and Pat McCafferty, along with former assistant state's attorney Terrence Johnson, acted with malice, willfulness, and reckless indifference to the rights of those children. They knew there was no evidence or probable cause against those four boys. Their actions were part of a systemic use of coercion to fabricate statements and maliciously prosecute vulnerable suspects. These officers intentionally failed to pursue evidence that would have led to the actual assailant, Johnny Douglas. Instead, they framed innocent teenagers in order to close the murder case without regard for their guilt or innocence. Attorneys with the exoneration project have also filed a lawsuit, which points to Cook County's long history of wrongful convictions, including the Eaglewood Four. The Exoneration Project worries that potentially exonerating notifications of DNA results might never make their way back to the person who was wrongly convicted of the crime. The Exoneration Project isn't seeking money. The organization is asking for a copy of the DNA hit notifications in order to investigate potential claims of innocence. The state's attorney's office acknowledged that it has been receiving DNA hit notifications since 2016, but the office said disclosing them would be an unwarranted invasion of privacy. The state's attorney's office also stated that they don't have access to the database themselves. They just get copied on emails from the Illinois State Police regarding the notifications. This lawsuit was submitted after it recently came to light that a Georgia man was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison. The local prosecutor's office had received a DNA notification that exonerated him, but that information was not shared, and so that man spent an additional five years in prison for a crime he didn't commit.
0: Unwarranted invasion of whose privacy? They refuse to give up the DNA hits that could exonerate people they put away because it'll show just how broken the legal system is and just how corrupted they are. They would much rather let an innocent person rot in jail than look bad. The system
1: is so messed up, and I really hope the next generation of people working with the law do a lot better, because I know it's too late for the ones who have already become too comfortable being corrupt in a system that allows them to be.
0: We, as a society, have to demand they do better. Otherwise, the corrupt will continue to do whatever they want.
1: Vincent, Terrell, Harold, and Michael are trying to rebuild their lives and are overjoyed to be reunited with their families. They said if they've learned anything, it's never to take life for granted.
0: Some of the most formative years of these men's lives were taken from them simply because they were young and easy to manipulate. Corrupt detectives and prosecutors conspired to intentionally ruin their lives. And in the process allowed a dangerous killer to remain free, raping and killing even more women. Eventually these innocent men were set free but there were no direct consequences for the actions of the officers who locked them away. Nina Glover's killer lived his life with the knowledge that he had gotten away with murder. There was no justice served in this case. How many more cases like this are out there? More and more seem to come to light every day. We can help get justice for those wrongfully
1: convicted. Investigating Innocence is a national nonprofit wrongful conviction advocacy organization. They provide investigative support to financially struggling inmates, lawyers, and the Innocence Projects throughout the United States who seek to prove post conviction claims of actual innocence. Donations assist with paying for DNA testing, investigative and legal services, as well as expand the ability to take on more cases. To learn more, visit investigatinginnocence.org.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at CrimeAndConjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at CrimeAndConjurePodcast for our question of the week.
1: Steph, what is our Conjure tip of the week?
0: Today I want to tell you about hagstones. Hagstones contain naturally occurring holes that happen from water beating down on specific spots over a long period of time, causing erosion. This results in stones of all sizes, shapes, and kinds with perfectly round holes. However, there is much more to them than their unique appearance. These stones are powerful promoters of strength, self-renewal, and freedom. They also can protect you from anyone who wishes to cause you harm. It's considered extremely lucky to find a hagstone when you're out and about on a walk, and even luckier if you don't go looking for it and just stumble upon one.
1: Yes, I've seen these worn as necklaces, hung in cars, and left on altars. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers!